This is the fourth, final, and farthest reaching chapter of our Better Half mini-series encompassing six lectures back to back to back to back to back to back regarding the First Ladies of the United States from 1944 to the present. You will hear this sound between each lesson to break them apart. I look forward to bringing you new, non-governmentally-related Scattered Curiosities episodes in 2022, which are already in the works. We are now two-thirds through our roster of First Ladies for this 10th episode of Better Half. Until Eleanor Roosevelt took over the radio waves, the First Ladies were expected to be prim, perfect party planners with no voice whatsoever at the ballot box in advance of 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. Now, I'm not qualified to discuss the inequities opposed upon women throughout history or any kind of history for that matter. But suffice it to say that we only know about our first ladies up until this point via the press, memoirs, and what can be divined from letters and personal artifacts, such as Martha Washington's travel-sized sewing case, Louisa Adams' harp and ornate music stand, Letitia Tyler's flask-like calling card box, Mary Lincoln's four-piece chicken foot tea set, Ida McKinley's handmade slippers, and Edith Wilson's white bandage pilgrimesque World War I Red Cross hat, all of which are on display at the Smithsonian Institution. Their First Lady's collection of gowns unveils the quiddity of these American queens in a more tangible manner. Martha Washington's taffeta gown featuring butterflies, Dolly Madison's satin dragonfly robe, Sarah Polk's blue poinsettia pattern woven dress, and Helen Taft's green satin Chinese robe. Just this year, in May of 2021, the National Portrait Gallery of the organization had an exhibit that was titled with words lifted from a letter that Julia Tyler sent to her mother when marrying into the position at such a tumultuous time in the nation's history. Quote, Every eye is upon me. End quote an astute observation. But as the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, goes, you can get the essence of First Lady's charisma, elan, and humor from the paintings. Of the women we have covered thus far, here are a few that caught my eye in chronological order. Starting with a busty, blushed, nearly bare-shouldered Dolly Madison, seated in a red velour chair, wearing a baby doll dress, ornamented by a thin gold strand rounding her neck four times, which embodies precisely how I envisioned her in my mind's eye. Elizabeth Monroe's wasn't produced for more than a century after having left the White House. Because it was painted in 1932, her ensemble is a bit anachronistic, resembling a speakeasy flapper in a black short-sleeved dress capped with tufted cuffs of white fur Agnet to a fuzzy red cartoon crown. Louisa Adams emits a puritanical semblance, extremely prudent, covered, 
lots of lace, and a priggish, coiffed chapeau. If you've ever seen depictions of her husband, John Quincy, you might liken them to one of those couples that resemble each other. Emily Tennessee Donaldson has her hair elegantly up in curls with shorn shoulders, exposing a long neck and extended deltoids that flow into a tenebrous, regal velvet dress. Angelica Van Buren is lively with the earmarks of a French aristocrat. Ruffles, poofs, a feather headdress, and satin gloves. She stands playfully next to a bust of her father-in-law as the blazingly illuminated subject in an otherwise dismal Stygian setting. Anna Harrison's is not flattering. Much of it is blurry. The only detail is in her face, but it is tightly swathed in an atramentous bonnet. You can't even make out what she's wearing. It looks like she's wearing a black trench coat. Julia Tyler, too, is the beacon of light in a very Sumerian room, seemingly donning a dress that she was put in rather than choosing herself, and crowned with a headdress analogous to Angie Van Buren's, but far less glamorous. Sarah Polk wears a dark red velvet dress, a wrapped pearl necklace, and matching pearl bracelets. The whole tone is dreary. It is not well lit. Frances Cleveland leans against a doorframe, hair up, legs crossed, arms extended to the knee, with fingers pensively interlocked. A big, pouty-lipped, Lady Gaga-like expression on her face seems to ask, What? Edith Roosevelt smiles with confidence sitting on a bench outside the White House, attired in a white dress, big black hat, black flowing overcoat, and a diamond-studded cane. In a word, it is baller. Helen Taft appears to be caught mid-act in making a rocket-style kickline move with a panicked visage. She hauntingly shines in the woods where a leafy window reveals a corner of the White House. It is the most brilliantly resplendent part of the vignette. In an earlier episode, I stated that I like Grace Coolidge's simulacrum the best and described it as, quote, magnificent, a fabulous yet elegant sleeveless red dress with her majestic white dog Rob Roy by her side, backdropped with the far-off White House, end quote. Now, on the scent of Eleanor Roosevelt's hyperextended stay in the White House came a whole new era for humankind as the world entered into the Atomic Age an alliterative locution designed as a selling slogan. Americans were given the false promise that atomic energy would obliterate utility and gas bills through cheap, clean, safe nuclear power in homes where a single atomic pellet fueled an automobile for a year. People ate it up and attended dawn bomb parties in the desert outside of Las Vegas to witness nuclear weapons testing underscored by live music and atomic-themed cocktails. The only safety precaution given was to shower afterwards. As a result, cancer cases climbed at an alarming rate along with premature births. Both were symbolic of the rapidly changing nature of the times, but the brakes were about to be slammed on the advancement of the First Lady with Eleanor's successor, 
who surprisingly did not pick up the reins from Mrs. Roosevelt in the way of being a monomaniac social altruist and voice of women's equality. Elizabeth Virginia Wallace, or Bess, was born to a politician whose father was a former mayor of Independence, Missouri. Like her two predecessors, Bess was somewhat of a tomboy, being the eldest sibling of three brothers. Renowned as a fierce tennis player, she is better remembered as a fashionista. According to a friend, quote, Bess always had more stylish hats than the rest of us did, or she wore them with more style, end quote. Future husband Harry Truman wound up attending the same school as Bess after his family had moved to town, but she didn't take notice of him until age 17. Then tragedy struck the household when her father climbed into the bathtub, put a gun to his head, and pulled the trigger. Overwhelming financial deficits were cited as the reason. Through her grief, Bess dated Harry for nine years, even turning down his first proposal in 1911. They married after he served as a field artillery captain in World War I. Harry said Bess was, quote, all that a girl could be possibly and impossibly, end quote. Upon his return from the French front, the Trumans opened up a Kansas City haberdashery, and Harry dabbled in Jackson County politics, touting the importance of cutting wasteful fat out of wartime concordance. Remarkably, he remained in the Army Reserve until 1953. In the meantime, he'd be doling out judgments from the bench, preparing for a victorious Senate run, which compelled Harry, Bess, and 10-year-old daughter Margaret to pack up for Washington. Mrs. Truman became active in the Congressional Club, Red Cross, and served as the chairman of the Senate Special Committee to investigate the National Defense Program. However, Bess did not much care for the D.C. lifestyle, making the next 18 years of her life tenuous, especially when FDR died and transferred the title of most dangerous man on the planet to her husband, who then dropped two atomic bombs on Japan within four months on the job. Bess longed for privacy. According to Harry, quote, she was not especially interested in the formalities and pomp or the artificiality which, as we had learned, inevitably surround the family of the president, end quote. The White House was in disrepair and scarcely averted a complete knockdown and rebuild. Instead, massive construction had the Trumans living in the Blair House for three years. When a television tour of The Progress aired in 1952, it was moderated by the president in place of the White House hostess, Bess Truman, who only entertained during the social season. She supposedly hated the dry cleaning in Washington, D.C. so much that laundry was sent to Kansas City to be done right. Bess had but one press conference as FLOTUS. In her view, quote, I am not the one who is elected. I have nothing to say to the public, end quote. When taking questions, she often answered, no comment. 
which was a complete 180 from Eleanor Roosevelt's weekly press junkets the nation had become accustomed to for a dozen years. Though Bess did keep the tradition of being honorary president of the Girl Scouts of America, Women's National Democratic Club, Washington Animal Rescue League, and chairman of the American Red Cross. Mrs. Truman underwent a mastectomy in 1959, and when Lyndon Johnson signed the Medicare law, she and Harry were the first citizens to get their cards at a ceremony that was held at the Truman Library. Bess outlived Harry by a decade and has the record as the longest living Slotus and Flotus at age 97. Mamie Geneva Dowd was the second eldest daughter of a meatpacking mogul and buyer of live hogs who retired at age 36. She was named for the hit song Lovely Lake Geneva. Mamie attended Wolcott School for Girls and shortly after graduating met Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ike, at a ceremony in San Antonio, Texas where he was honored as the officer of the day. Enchanted, Ike said that she was, quote, saucy in the look about her face and in her whole attitude, end quote, and gave her a replica of his West Point class ring as a Valentine's Day proposal. Five months later, the lovebirds were married and flew from military bases in France, the Philippines, and Panama. They moved 28 times total before retirement. The Eisenhowers had two kids. One died at age four. The surviving child followed in his father's military path and matured into an ambassador to Belgium. Amid World War II, Ike became a household name as the Supreme Allied Commander. Subsequent to the war, they enjoyed a five-year taste of civilian life when Ike accepted an offer to be president of Columbia University. A circulating rumor that he had cheated on Mamie with his attractive female driver Kay Summersby during the war was countered with the release of Ike's bestseller, Letters to Mamie, chock full of entries like this one from September 15, 1942. Quote, I'm so damn mad today that I shouldn't write to you, but it occurred to me that scribbling of a note might reduce the heat of anger and get me on an even keel again. Just please remember that no matter how short my notes, I love you. I could never be in love with anyone else, and that you fill my thoughts and hopes for the future always. End quote. Mrs. Eisenhower had the demeanor that was graceful, personal, rakish, proud, and thrifty. She clipped coupons and shared recipes with the nation's women via magazines. The ingredients for Mamie's million-dollar fudge are readily available online. It is under a festive Mamie that the White House was decorated for Halloween for the first time, and after inviting African-American kids to participate in the White House Easter egg roll, she was given honorary status in the National Council of Negro Women. As the model of a loyal American wife in good housekeeping, Mamie submitted a piece called Vote for My Husband or for Governor Stevenson, but please vote. 
And shortly thereafter, the New York Dress Institute honored the First Lady multiple times over for generating the Mamie look. Bobbed hair with tightly rolled Mamie bangs, bracelets, long-hemmed gowns, and petite hats which mix luxurious and basic accoutrements. One outfit in particular lives in the Smithsonian today. A pink dress with over 2,000 rhinestones attached, adorned with a pink purse, pink silk gloves, and a pearl necklace. The trademark tone resulted in two new hues, First Lady Pink and Mamie Pink, which translated from clothes to wallpaper to restroom accessories. Whispers abounded that Mamie was an alcoholic on the grounds that she was often seen stumbling, a symptom of Meniere's disease, an inner ear affliction that screws up a person's equilibrium. She was a lifelong advocate for healthy living and spearheaded fundraising for the American Heart Association. After the White House, the couple retired to their Gettysburg home until Ike's death. Mamie then moved back to D.C., and even campaigned for Richard Nixon. How could she not? Her grandson David was married to Nixon's daughter Julie. Mamie Eisenhower died at the age of 82 from complications set on by a stroke. Next time, a horse-riding multilinguist beauty lands a job at Vogue magazine only to give it all up for marriage, and a billboard-busting first lady described to be purdy as a ladybird. Last time, we took a brief detour to talk about portraits and personal effects of women we've covered in the series up to the atomic age and birth of the U.S. military-industrial complex. Our next national superintendents nearly averted World War III. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier was born on Long Island to a family funded by the Wall Street savvy of her father, John Vernot Black Jack Bouvier III. John didn't sugarcoat his preference of Jackie over younger sister Caroline, saying plainly that she was, quote, the most beautiful daughter a man ever had, end quote. Jackie rode horses, took ballet, spoke Italian, French, Spanish, and received a curious review from a teacher stating that she was, quote, a darling child, the prettiest little girl, very clever, very artistic, and full of the devil, end quote. Apparently, this was due to the fact that the little prodigy would routinely finish studies before her classmates and misbehave through her successive boredom. Much as Jackie's self-confidence may be attributed to parental praise, Black Jack Bouvier was a philandering alcoholic whose condition only worsened over the years ensuing the stock market crash and led to her parents' divorce. Mother Janet soon remarried the heir to Standard Oil, Hugh Dudley Auchincloss Jr., immersing Jackie into a very fancy society that soured at the notion of divorce especially for Catholics. Surrounded by castigators, Jackie escaped to boarding school, 
where a field trip became her first time in the White House. While enrolled at Vassar, she weekended in New York City, gathering the necessary social credentials to secure the title of Debutante of the Year. Flying high, the bright-eyed princess decided to study abroad for a bachelor's degree in French literature and wound up as a junior editor at Vogue magazine ready to commute between New York City and Paris. Très bon. She worked there but one day. Quitting after the managing editor alluded that at Jackie's advanced age of 22, she might not ever land a husband. The trilingual beauty instead signed on as a part-time receptionist for the Washington Times Herald, but felt unchallenged by the job, so she was made the inquiring camera girl, tasked with putting questions to people on the street and taking their pictures to include in the segment. Jackie even interviewed a six-year-old Trisha Nixon about being the vice president's daughter. Old Lady Bouvier did indeed finally land a fiancé following a brief courtship, but broke it off when catching the eye of a rich, handsome congressman, soon-to-be senator, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Their 1,200-guest wedding was colossal. Jackie was pregnant with JFK Jr. during the 1960 presidential muckrake, and answered questions about the maternal experience amid John's DNC nomination via a publication called Campaign Wife. It was evident that she was a pleasing asset to Kennedy's image, and he made sure Jackie was in front of the cameras, flashing her Parisian-style clothing, which was both praised and scrutinized equally. Sleeveless A-line dresses hemmed at middle knee, a pearl necklace, and bouffant hair topped by a pillbox hat became the Jackie look. Translating later in life to white jeans, a black turtleneck, and big ol' round sunglasses. Mrs. Kennedy hired a staff to manage both wardrobe and press-related matters, took advantage of the platform to bring arts to the forefront, and through galas that federated politicians and creatives under the same canopy laying the groundwork for the next administration's national endowments for both the arts and humanities. The top item on the First Lady's agenda was to bring alive the history of the executive mansion and make it more of a home. But the estimates she presented were way too high for Congress's tastes. The solution? Sell a guided tour book of the White House and use its monies to pay for the renovations including the infamous Rose Garden. Jackie came to the rescue of historic buildings in Lafayette Square, as well as artifacts that had been absconded by past first families on their way out the door. Recovered relics were then interred into the Smithsonian, which demanded the creation of the much-needed position of White House curator. On Valentine's Day, she gave the iconic Emmy-winning White House tour on CBS News and is the only First Lady to date to win the prestigious award. If that wasn't enough for worldwide appeal, when the Kennedys visited France, the locals were delighted by her fluency and reverence for their culture. 
she overshadowed John in such a way that he commented, quote, I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris, and I have enjoyed it, end quote. It was then on to Vienna to meet Nikita Khrushchev, who desired to shake Jackie's hand before John's. The Soviet premier was so enchanted that he gave her a puppy from the litter of the Russian canine cosmonaut Strelka, and the president of Pakistan gifted her a horse. 1963 was a grievous year. Jackie underwent an emergency cesarean resulting in the death of their infant child, Patrick, and on November 21st, she put on her husband's favorite outfit, the infamous pink Chanel suit, for what would be their final moments together. JFK, blown away, what else do I have to say? Amid the chaos of the gunshots, the presidential motorcade raced to Parkland Hospital, where an utterly shocked first lady looked over the operating room in her now blood-spattered regalia, which she refused to remove so photographs graphically depicted the gruesomeness of the despicable atrocity. Jackie didn't even change clothes when they swiftly swore Vice President Lyndon Johnson into office on Air Force One to legitimize the rash transfer of power. The stained wardrobe is on display at the Smithsonian. Jackie desired John to be mourned like Lincoln. Closed casket. Naturally, she wanted to be away from the spotlight, but how is that even possible? A week after the shooting, she interviewed with Time magazine comparing the Kennedy White House to King Arthur's Camelot, which just so happened to be the favorite musical of the fallen leader. Historians criticize the statement as a way to aggrandize John in the annals of time. By the way, King Arthur might not have even been real. Jackie and the kids stayed in the White House for two weeks before hopping in a U-Haul. President Johnson offered her the position of ambassador to France, Mexico, and the UK alike, but she refused them all. Her one request? Renaming the Florida Space Center to John F. Kennedy Space Center, as John was determined to land an American on the moon by the end of the decade. Brother-in-law Robert Kennedy saw that Jackie was taken care of and far outperformed his role as uncle to her children. When discovering that Bobby was going to run for president, she feared he might suffer a similar fate as John, and was right. On June 5, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was gunned down following the California Democratic primary. Jackie's horrified reaction, quote, if they're killing Kennedys, then my children are targets. I want to get out of this country, end quote. And she did. Fleeing with the kids and new husband Aristotle Onassis, but surrendering her Secret Service protection. The couple was married for seven years before he died. Jackie returned to America as an employee of the Viking Press and then, shockingly, appeared at the 1976 Democratic National Convention. Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis loved New York City and was integral to saving Grand Central Terminal, not station, in Manhattan from existential ruin 
as well as speaking against skyscrapers in Columbus Circle that overshadow Central Park. At first glance, her sepia-toned, oil-based portrait looks like it's straight out of the 1890s. The full-body rendering features a high-collared garment that resembles a conservative nightgown flanked by straight arms as she pensively stares out the window. Still an active equestrian at age 64, Jackie fell from her horse while on a fox hunt and the resulting hospital visit exposed an infected lymph node that revealed cancer leading to her death the following year. Claudia Alta Taylor was named after an uncle, but her nanny was the one to comment that the child was, quote, purdy as a ladybird. Growing up on the Brick House Plantation near the Texas-Louisiana border, Lady Bird's mother tragically died when she was five years old after a fall down the stairs induced a miscarriage. Lady Bird was left with her two brothers and a father who twice remarried. Sense dictated that she needed a woman's guidance, and her Aunt Effie tried to accommodate, but according to Lady Bird, quote, She opened my spirit to beauty, but she neglected to give me any insight into the practical matters a girl should know about, such as how to dress, or choose one's friends, or learning to dance, end quote. At age 15, Dad bought Lady Bird a car for driving to high school, and the adolescent race to the head of her senior class, became terrified of giving the valedictorian speech and willingly shirked classwork to lower her GPA. Excellent studentry followed to the University of Texas, where she graduated with a BA in history and journalism with dreams of being a reporter. In her early 20s, a friend introduced her to a congressional aide, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was so enamored that he proposed on the first date. She slowed his role, but only by 10 weeks when they became engaged. Bird is actually written on their marriage license. Lady Bird, too, suffered a miscarriage, three times over, in fact, but the Johnsons did have two daughters to survive childhood, Linda Bird and Lucy Baines, both of whom were married in the White House. Fun fact, all four of the family members have the initials LBJ. Ladybird thought it wise to use inheritance money to help fund Lyndon's crusade for Congress and headed the operations while he was serving his country in World War II, even helping to cool a disagreement between Lyndon and a young correspondent by the name of Dan Rather. With ample funds remaining in her birthright, Ladybird acquired a radio station and teamed up with the airwaves of CBS before purchasing a television station. Lyndon objected, but it was not his money to spend, which is a good thing considering that the astute business lady turned $40,000 into $150 million for the LBJ Holding Company, making her the first wife of a future president to become a millionaire. JFK took on LBJ as a running mate to try to appease Southern voters in 1960. Lyndon, like so many of his predecessors, 
found the role of vice president to be utterly pointless. The Johnsons were but two cars behind the Kennedys on the fateful day of the assassination and were supposed to have the first couple as guests at their ranch that evening. Lady Bird understood that she had a tough act to follow with Jackie's popularity and managed to give every citizen something that is underappreciated, like so many things by we Americans, the Highway Beautification Act, a.k.a. Lady Bird's Bill, the curbed construction of billboards, and promoted the planting of trees along our cross-country roads. Where flowers bloom, so does hope. She championed the Head Start program for misfortunate children and rode the rails southbound on a whistle-stop tour to push the Civil Rights Act. Lyndon was unsure of running after the term he completed for Kennedy, but Lady Bird was hot to point out that the alternative was not him. She held the Bible when he took the presidential oath again. Some gossip, Eartha Kitt yes, Catwoman, found herself in a conversation with Lady Bird about the Vietnam War at a luncheon and lamented, quote, You send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed. No wonder the kids rebel and take pot. End quote. And whether or not it was a direct result of the incident, Miss Kitt struggled to find work for the next 10 years. Towards the end of the decade, Lady Bird was ready to get out of D.C. with Lyndon, whose health was being tested by insurmountable stress. As the most active floatist since Eleanor Roosevelt, Lady Bird kept in contact with surviving first ladies and made sure to publish her memoir, A White House Diary. Whereas Lyndon died of a heart attack in 1974, Lady Bird continued to advocate beautification and work with the National Park Service, National Wildflower Research Center, and the National Geographic Society. Her tireless efforts earned the former First Lady a Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal after she and three successors held the Women and the Constitution Conference to address sexual inequality. Her official oil canvas portrait reveals deep dark eyes, a simple smile on a flushed face, crowned with perfectly sculpted hair, and draped in a shade of yellow that only the 1960s could produce. She sits beneath a cloudy sky with the Pantheonic Jefferson Memorial in the far-off distance. Lady Bird Johnson died in 2007 at the age of 94 but not before paying off her church's $300,000 mortgage. She is often ranked third in lineups of influential first ladies behind Abigail Adams and Eleanor Roosevelt. Next time, a wild Irish gypsy nicknamed Buddy rises from slotus to floatus to promote volunteerism, and a fashion model dancing instructor who also procured the two top jobs by way of double resignations eight months apart. Our prior interlude took us through the tumultuous decapod of the 1960s that left the Republic with two dead Kennedys and thousands more U.S. soldiers by way of the Vietnam quagmire that pointlessly raged on under the new management. 
Thelma Catherine Ryan, likewise called Patricia, was of Irish descent and born the day before St. Patrick's Day, though in high school her preferred sobriquet was Buddy. Growing up on a farm, Thelma was no stranger to hard work. Adjoined to her chores was a bank custodian gig that eventually led to bookkeeping work. By the time she was 19 and putting herself through the University of Southern California, working in retail as a typist, radiographer, and managing a pharmacy alike, she no longer went by birth name Thelma and adopted Pat ever after. As a merchandising major, it was said that she, quote, stood out from the empty-headed, overdressed little sorority girls of that era like a good piece of literature on a shelf of cheap paperbacks, end quote. But it wasn't all menial labor. Pat did do some film acting, albeit many significant celluloid moments never made the final cut. This didn't discourage her too much, as she truly wanted to be a high school teacher and realize that dream. Pat met hotshot lawyer Dick Nixon when both were in a community theater production of The Dark Tower. Agnet to his anxious predecessor, Dick too proposed to his wild Irish gypsy on the first date, but Pat made him work for it for a few years, and even had Dick drive her to and from dates with other men, the ultimate friend zone. At age 28, she finally capitulated because, quote, he was going places. He was vital and ambitious. He was always doing things. And you just don't realize how much fun he is. He's just so much fun, end quote. The wedded pair worked in tandem at the Office of Price Administration until he enlisted in the U.S. Navy in the course of World War II, and she, the American Red Cross. Once back on solid ground, the Nixon team barnstormed for Congress in 1946 and 1948 and had a baby girl in each of those years for good luck. Dick then climbed another rung of the legislative ladder to Senator Nixon. While competent at it, Pat disliked campaigning and had a sigh of relief when he became senator, which comes with a six-year term. But just 24 months into it, he was nominated as Dwight Eisenhower's vice president. From the get-go, Nixon was accused of taking illegal contributions and showed his mastery of deflection with the infamous Checkers speech. Checkers was a cocker spaniel that was given to Nixon from a political donor. It was their family dog, not a bribe. How could this sweet pooch be a bribe? Pat, Checkers, and daughters Trisha and Julie stood next to Dick on camera as he displayed the family as commonly American as baseball, effectively putting the controversy down. Pat upped the game for second lady responsibilities by touring hospitals, schools, small businesses, a leper colony, and foundling homes, both domestic and worldwide, and felt an obligation to bring these places to the forefront. However unsavory one might find Richard Nixon to be, his better half was referred to as, quote, 
a paragon of wifely virtues. Her efficiency makes other women feel slothful and untalented. Mrs. Nixon is always reported to be gracious and friendly. And she sure is friendly. She greets a stranger as a friend. She doesn't just shake hands, but clasps a visitor's hand in both her hands. Her manner is direct. Mrs. Nixon also upholds her reputation of always looking neat, no matter how long her day has been. End quote. Pat was honored as Outstanding Homemaker of the Year, Mother of the Year, the nation's ideal housewife, and by 1959, people were promoting a policy of Pat for First Lady. The contest against JFK is iconic in that it was the first televised debate and a really close race. People who watched it on TV believed that the handsome Kennedy won, and those who listened via radio waves got the impression that the elder statesman had the upper hand. In the end, Nixon lost, but Pat insisted he not concede and demand recounts. He would not. Instead, Dick made a go for the governor's mansion in California, but could not capture that bounty either. A six-year hiatus is just what was needed for Nixon to rebound for the 1968 presidential tug-of-war that left Democratic nominee Hubert Humphrey in the mud. Referred to as Madam Ambassador, Pat was the most traveled floatist up into her time, going to Romania, Indonesia, Pakistan, Guam, Ghana, Thailand, Liberia, and South Vietnam, just to name a few. What's more, she was the first floatist to step inside the Soviet Union and China. The Chinese foreign minister was so smitten, he gifted two giant pandas to the USA. When the great Peruvian earthquake struck, Pat organized a vital response directly noticed by the victims on the receiving end. Quote, Her coming here meant more than anything else President Nixon could have done. End quote. And she was awarded the Peruvian Grand Cross of the Order of the Sun. On her platform of volunteerism, quote, Our success as a nation depends on our willingness to give generously of ourselves for the welfare and enrichment of the lives of others. End quote. This led to the Domestic Volunteer Service Act which provided benefits to those who selflessly chip in for the betterment of humanity. Pat obliged the President's Committee on Unemployment of the Handicapped and invited wounded veterans to the First Family's Thanksgiving festivities. Pat insisted an American flag always be flown above the White House and saw the tour information was provided in Italian, Spanish, Russian, and French in addition to English. Occasionally, the First Lady even came to visit with tour groups, one time showing a little boy the laundry room to prove that she resided there. She understood live music vivified any milepost and pulled out all the stops for the 1972 Christmas season by booking the Carpenters. Much as Pat maintained that she was pro-choice concerning Roe versus Wade, she did comment, quote, I'm really not for abortion. I think it's a personal thing. I mean abortion on demand, wholesale, 
end quote. That same year, Pat became the first Republican first lady to speak at a national convention. The misogyny of politics still flows in D.C. today, and you better believe that the 70s were more interested in a Flotus's flair above all else. Women's Wear Daily said she, quote, had a good figure and a good posture and the best-looking legs of any woman in public life today, end quote. As a size 10, she was proud to wear things off the rack rather than having them custom-tailored. Pat's mustard-colored satin inaugural dress was panned as, quote, a schoolteacher on her night out, end quote. However, it was conceded that she maintained a ladylike countenance. But everything started to unravel in 1974. Pat was unaware of the secret recordings that occurred within the Watergate scandal, and when she learned of them, implored that they not be released to the electorate, comparing the magnetic tapes to, quote, private love letters for one person alone. Dick has done so much for this country. Why is this happening? End quote. When he announced his resignation, her only response was, quote, but why? End quote. As the Nixons departed Washington, D.C., Pat said to her successor, Betty Ford, quote, you'll see many of these red carpets and you'll get so you hate them. End quote. Pat preferred privacy after the dissension, popping up sporadically when deemed necessary or beneficial to do so. Two years passed before Pat suffered a stroke affecting the left side of her body, and then another one seven years later. The former first lady had been a smoker, not in public, and battled emphysema only to develop lung cancer to which she succumbed at age 81. Mr. Nixon was devastated, and the populace was agape to see the staunch leader openly weeping for his lost love. He died ten months later. Pat Nixon's oil portrait is not flattering. Plainly backdropped with the essence of a Charlie Brown-style rain cloud looming overhead, her face is perhaps the darkest portion of the painting. She sits with folded hands over her left knee in a grayish-blue scoop-neck gown revealing an elegant pearl choker. A curious lily leaning into the right-hand corner of the frame is arguably the prettiest aspect of the whole drab tableau. Elizabeth Ann Bloomer was born in Chicago, go Cubs, but grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she was nicknamed Betty by her Royal Rubber Company traveling salesman father, William. Betty began child modeling at age 11, and to help her folks subsidize after the great stock market crash, she taught children dance moves that were all the rage in 1929, such as the waltz, foxtrot, and lindy hop. Betty went on to study choreography seriously and earned a degree from the Cala Travis Dance Studio. Calamity struck when her father died of carbon monoxide poisoning while working under the car in their garage one day before his 60th birthday. In the aftermath, 
Betty desired to roost in New York City, and with determination found herself in the Chelsea neighborhood of the Big Apple, performing with a rug-cutting troupe that played Carnegie Hall. Mother Hortense scorned the premise of her daughter being seduced in the wicked, unsafe city and implored Betty to return home for six months, and if she still yearned for the big white way of the concrete jungle, she could revisit Manhattan with a mother's blessing. Mom won. Betty remained in the Midwest, travailed as a style coordinator for a department store, and started her own dance troupe. At age 24, Betty married an insurance salesman, William Warren, whom she had known a dozen years, seemingly aloof to his descent into alcoholism. She filed for divorce just before William fell into a coma, but graciously helped him recoup before finally cutting ties two years later. It was then that Betty got cozy with a World War II veteran and lawyer who had also been a model in his younger days and just at the vanguard of his political career of 13 bids and wins to the U.S. House of Representatives, Gerald Ford. Jerry's polling team was concerned about the optics of wedding a former dancer, once divorced, and persuaded the pair to wait for marriage until after the votes were cast. The Fords had four kids, who were never spanked, as Betty didn't believe in it. Which is kind of remarkable for the times. I mean, even I was spanked as a child of the 1980s. The family dwelt just outside of Washington, D.C. for a quarter century as Jerry's seniority status rose in the House of Representatives. When Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned for tax evasion, Nixon promoted Ford to Veep. And then when Nixon resigned a year later amid the Watergate scandal, Ford became the president, making him the only man in U.S. history to hold both offices without having been elected to either position by the American people. Whereas Betty was well-received as FLOTUS, Many Republicans despised her liberal attitude towards marijuana use, sexual liberty, and her support of the Equal Rights Amendment, gun control, drugs, abortion, and feminism. They referred to her as no lady and going so far as to ask for her resignation, as if that's somehow even possible. Concurrently, Gerald was trying to pick up the shattered pieces of the fractured presidency he inherited. Quote, There had been so much cover-up during Watergate that we wanted to be sure that there would be no cover-up in the Ford administration. End quote. Betty was at the center of breast cancer awareness when she underwent a mastectomy and remarked, quote, When other women have the same operation, it doesn't make any headlines but the fact that I was the wife of the president put it in the headlines and brought before the public this particular experience I was going through. It made a lot of women realize that it could happen to them. I'm sure I've saved at least one person, maybe more, end quote. A statement that has statistically been proven to be true. It is known as the Betty Ford blip. When a vocally hoarse Gerald Ford lost the 76 election to Jimmy Carter, Betty gave the concession speech. 
A few years out of the White House, she found herself confronted with a family intervention asking her to seek help for abuse of opioids and alcohol. Her reflection of the times, quote, I liked alcohol. It made me feel warm, and I loved pills. They took away my tension and my pain, end quote. And by virtue of recovery, she sought to help others do the same and was put on the board of directors for the Betty Ford Center for Substance Abuse and Addiction. She remained involved in numerous charities long after her FLOTUS obligations had ceased, earning her both the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. Both Fords died at age 93, five years apart. Betty belongs to the National Women's Hall of Fame and is the only FLOTUS to have appeared on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Betty Ford gives a very regal vibe in her official portrait. Not flashy, but polished and refined. She emits a congenial smile, seated in a finely detailed plush velvet chair, adorned in a sleeveless sky-blue dress, draped with a sheer wrap that teases just a hint of bare shoulders. Her ease demeanor is flanked by a blooming pink bouquet that energizes all the other colors of the vignette. Next time, another National Women's Hall of Famer with the Secret Service code name Dancer shakes hands with a serial killer and a silver screen starlet who struggles by dint of the abrogating Hollywood blacklist era gave her a vernacular manifesto to just say no. When last we convened, America was recovering from resignation hangovers, and it looked like the nation might finally take a long, sensible look in the mirror with leadership on the up and up. It comes as no surprise that Eleanor Rosalind Smith was raised by hardworking parents. Her mother, a dressmaker, educator, and U.S. Postal Service operative, and father, a farmer, mechanic, and bus driver. Yet, they were darn near the poverty line. Growing up beside younger brothers on a street where most kids her age were boys, her interests in architecture and planes were deemed to be unfeminine. When Rosalind's dad, Wilburn, died of leukemia, she had to step up her matronly skills to assist Mother Frances making dresses to pay the bills. It was important to Wilburn that Rosalind go to college, and she strived to honor her late father's wishes, but lapsed finances caused her to drop out. At age 18, Rosalind met U.S. Naval Academy cadet Jimmy Carter and swooned for her man in uniform, allowing him to kiss her on the first date. Unheard of! They were soon joined in wedded bliss, hair to for Jimmy touring the seas for their first years as parents. Upon his retirement from the service, the Carters ran their family peanut farm. And within a decade, Jimmy was in the Georgia State Senate. Rosalind never forgot where she was when apprised of President Kennedy's assassination, the hair salon, or how her horror intensified when learning her son's teacher and classmates cheered at the news. Rosalind bolstered Jimmy's gubernatorial run and trekked on his behalf, 
enduring what she called, quote, the worst political experience of my life, end quote, when a Republican voter spit on her. Carter lost the contest and immediately focused on his successful 1970 bid for the same position. Rosalind got practice first ladying through Georgia's Commission to Improve Services for the Mentally and Emotionally Handicapped, and Jimmy thenceforth set his scope on the White House. Quick side note, if you ever see a photograph claiming to be Rosalind Carter shaking hands with serial killer John Wayne Gacy and question its authenticity, it's real. He was a passionate supporter of the Democratic Party. Another point of interest, and equally as unlikely, was how close the exiting Betty Ford and incoming Rosalind Carter became despite partisan politics. For the inaugural parade, the Carters walked hand-in-hand up Pennsylvania Avenue to set an example of cutting down oil use amid waning supply, triggering a chain reaction of criticism from the conservative right that Jimmy Carter was making the United States look poor. And Rosalind wasn't helping matters by adorning the first family's Christmas tree in eggshells, peanuts, and pine cones. The president, too, was mocked when appearing on television in a sweater, encouraging his countrymen to turn down their thermostats to conserve energy. Rosalind was quite involved as FLOTUS and sat in on cabinet meetings as an observer only. To those who said she had no right to be there, quote, I was there to be informed so that when I traveled across the country, which I did a great deal, and was questioned by the press and other individuals about all areas of government, I'd know what was going on, end quote. She was the first floatist to speak to Congress since Eleanor Roosevelt, joined the ongoing plight of the Equal Rights Amendment, and face scrutiny for not being more of a ladylike hostess. The U.S. diplomat to Brazil commented, quote, Women should be kept at home, and that's all. End quote. Just as when she was First Lady of Georgia, Rosalind brought mental health to the forefront of her agenda to, quote, Remove the stigma from mental health care so people will be free to talk about it and seek help. It's been taboo for so long to admit you had a mental health problem. End quote. Rosalind was respected worldwide, meeting with leaders in Brazil, Thailand, Costa Rica, and heading the American delegation of Pope Paul VI's funeral in Rome. Her Secret Service code name was Dancer. The whole Iran hostage situation, did you see the movie Argo? did irreparable damage to any re-election hopes, and Jimmy leaned heavily on Rosalind to ramp up efforts to solicit votes. While securing the Democratic ticket over primary opponent Ted Kennedy, the debates exposed a lot of talking points that Ronald Reagan's team delighted in. A Reagan White House terrified Rosalind, and rightly so, Because even though the Mental Health System Act got passed just under the wire, Ronald Reagan saw that it was defunded. The only silver lining to their leaving office? The release of the hostages in Iran. 
After the White House, the Carters continued to operate non-for-profit organizations that put them in financial arrears to be paid off with memoir money. Rosalind took the election loss harder than Jimmy did and was so outspoken that people believed that she might stand for governor of Georgia or even U.S. Senate. In 1986, the former first couple became enmeshed with Habitat for Humanity, building houses in areas of disrepair, and they remain active in the consortium to this very day. The pair jointly got a Presidential Medal of Freedom at the millennium's end, and she was put in the National Women's Hall of Fame. Barack Obama saw Rosalind's goals finally realized by including insurance coverage for mental health via the Affordable Care Act. She was reportedly shaking with joy. The Carters are still a dynamic duo for volunteerism and vying to get the death penalty abolished. Rosalind supported meme sensation Bernie Sanders for the 2016 election, and at the time of this recording, she is the oldest living former first lady and longest married. Rosalind's official oil portrait has her seated in a nondescript grayish-brown setting sporting a high-collared, obstinate, light purple dress. Her deep, dark eyes are entrancing, fringed by blushed cheeks above a slight but superincumbent smile. Anne Frances Robbins was an only child born to Kenneth, a car salesman, and Edith, an actress, in Queens, New York, but spent a chunk of her childhood being raised in Maryland by her aunt and uncle when her folks separated. They called her Nancy. Quote, My favorite times were when Mother had a job in New York and Aunt Virgie would take me by train to stay with her. End quote. Nancy was eventually adopted by her mother's second husband, Chicago neurosurgeon Loyal Edward Davis, whom she described as, quote, a man of great integrity who exemplified old-fashioned values, end quote. Nancy enrolled in the Girls' Latin School of Chicago at age eight, and a decade later was a double major in English and drama at Smith College. Soon after, she appeared in a short film titled The Crippler, which was created to bring awareness to the fight against polio. Not quite the breakout role she'd been hoping for, so it was back to her sales associate position at Marshall Field's department store. Through her mother's theatrical connections, Nancy was able to hobnob in the right circles and landed a part in a touring show called Ramshackle Inn, giving the ingenue a much-needed legitimate credit on her resume. She then appeared as a, quote, Oriental lady-in-waiting, end quote, in Broadway's Lute Song, alongside Yule Brenner and Mary Martin. Why? Well, because according to the producers, quote, you look like you could be Chinese, end quote. Nancy screen-tested for MGM and moved to Hollywood, having inked a seven-year contract, where she dated leading men like Peter Lawford and Clark Gable, and was pitted against Janet Leigh and Debbie Reynolds 
four roles that stretched from obedient homemaker to sensible mother. And if that wasn't challenging enough, Nancy thereupon discovered that she was on the Hollywood blacklist and found sanctuary with the president of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan. Turns out, there was another Nancy Davis in the union, and that's who was blacklisted. Haha, we're in love now. Neither was especially fond of the nightlife scene, leading one publication to describe them as, quote, the romance of a couple who have no vices, end quote. By 1952, she was on the SAG board of directors, reportedly pregnant, and MGM was not interested in renewing her contract. So, she married divorcee Ronald Reagan and became stepmother to the kids he had with first wife, Jane Weinman. Nancy's first post-MGM project was the sci-fi movie Donovan's Brain which gave an unfavorable review of her as, quote, a sadly baffled wife in an utterly silly film, end quote. Eventually, she and Ron shared the screen in Hellcats of the Navy. The write-up of Nancy as Nurse Lieutenant Helen Blair, quote, she does well with what she has to work with, end quote. Her final cinematic outing, Crash Landing, preceded a string of television appearances before she retired from acting in 1962. All the experience gained in the executive positions at SAG prepped the Reagans for an even more dramatic governing body. Despite being named LA Times Woman of the Year, the model first lady of California was unwilling to live in the stuffy Sacramento governor's mansion she preferred L.A., and moved the family into a rented house in a nearby suburb, which was viewed as snobbish by various disseminations. The Reagans built the Golden State a new governor's home. Amusingly, at the conclusion of Ronnie's second term, his successor, Jerry Brown, declared that he would not live there. In the meantime... Nancy focused on the California Arts Commission making numerous public appearances for the good of charities, veterans, and the Foster Grandparents Program. All the while, Ron was devising a path to dethrone President Gerald Ford. In a scenario almost unimaginable in today's political climate, Nancy campaigned alongside the wife of her husband's primary opponent, Betty Ford. Newspapers called it the Battle of the Queens. Reagan failed to get the party nod this first time out, but the GOP saw in him much promise, and by 1980, it was suddenly morning in America. One year into his reign, would-be assassin John Hinckley Jr. fired a bullet at Ronald Reagan, which shot his approval rating through the roof. In light of the sobering incident... Nancy relied on a Bay Area astrologer to consult over the president's schedule to keep him from harm. According to a former cabinet member, quote, virtually every major move and decision the Reagans made during my time as White House chief of staff 
was cleared in advance with a woman in San Francisco who drew up horoscopes to make certain that the planets were in a favorable alignment for the Enterprise, end quote. As was the case in California, Nancy ascertained the executive mansion to be an unfit home for the leader of the free world and in much need of a facelift. Quote, This house belongs to all Americans, and I want it to be something which they can be proud. End quote. Nancy's wardrobe was described as a, quote, glamorous paragon of chic, end quote, but also got the Reagans in a bit of hot water via the Ethics in Government Act. She borrowed, rather than bought, some high-ticket clothing from world-renowned designers and just kind of failed to return the valuable loans, a violation of the EGA. Her defense was, quote, promoting the American fashion industry, end quote. And she was. Many designers didn't even care if she kept the loans. The First Lady of the United States is a walking, talking magazine cover. Lavish spending on vestures and renovations during a recession is one matter, but after Nancy ditched donation-funded White House flatware for $209,508 in new China and a first-class trip to the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di, Americans were angry. I was but a lad when her just-say-no-to-drugs crusade took off as a response to a question posed to her by a schoolgirl, what should I do if someone tries to give me drugs? And I was especially blown away to see the first lady on a TV show my mom watched while I did homework, Dynasty, and then one that I watched, Different Strokes. While encouraging children to stay away from substances... Reagan put $1.7 billion into his failed war on drugs. A few years out of office, the IRS caught up with those fashion contributions, amounting to more than $3 million. Both Reagan's publicly announced personal medical maladies in the hopes of bringing sensibility and relief to those who suffered similarly. She breast cancer and he Alzheimer's by establishing the Reagan Research Institute in Chicago, Illinois. George W. Bush honored Nancy with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Ron got one from Bush Sr. And they became the third presidential couple to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. At Ronald's funeral, Charlton Heston eulogized the end of, quote, the greatest love affair in the history of the American presidency. End quote. Being that Reagan basically invented the modern-day Republican, it is surprising that Nancy took a very anti-GOP stance on stem cell research for its potential to combat the onset of Alzheimer's disease. She implored Bush Jr. to fund it. He didn't. Nancy attended the funerals of Lady Bird Johnson, both Fords, and continued making political appearances by stumping for Republican John McCain, who ironically lost to Barack Obama, the president that did fund Mrs. Reagan's embryonic stem cell research. She candidly praised him for doing so, and maintained a friendship with his wife Michelle. 
When Nancy died in 2016, Obama ordered flags to be flown at half-mast. Her portrait is long and thin, like she was. A thick pearl choker rounds her neck as she coyly clasps hands over the lower backside of her cherry-red floor-length gown. Thoughtfully staring in profile with graceful command, an overhead spotlight isolates her in a brilliant circle inside of an otherwise dark wood-paneled room. Next time, we'll introduce the first floatist to be wife of one president and mother to another since 1825, the first floatist to be a senator, secretary of state, and presidential candidate, and the only first lady to have a master's degree in library science who unleashed the wonders of literacy by way of rainbow rooms. Our last episode took us from peacenik peanut farmers to a declared war on drugs ushering in an ascending regime of nepotism. Barbara Pierce grew up in Rye, New York as the fourth cousin, four times removed, from U.S. President Franklin Pierce. Her father Marvin held sway over the McCall Corporation, which pioneered the women's magazine Red Book. With an enthusiasm for tennis, swimming, and cycling, a 16-year-old Barbara met George Herbert Walker Bush at a Connecticut Country Club dance and wed him four years later while he was on naval leave. The pilot christened three of his World War II bombers in her honor, Barbara I, Barbara II, and Barbara III. Real original. After the war, George attended Yale and ultimately found himself in the Texas oil racket, and within that span, sired six children. Their oldest sons are ominously connected to the number 43. George W. was the 43rd president, and Jeb was the 43rd governor of Florida. By the mid-1960s, George Sr. was representing Texas in Congress, and Barbara was totally along for the ride and deeply engrossed in policies at hand. Richard Nixon promoted Bush to an ambassador, and Gerald Ford made him an emissary in China, where the dyad lived for three years, exploring their surroundings on bicycles. However, once called back to Washington, D.C. to supervise the CIA, George could no longer share stratagems. Barbara was bummed, feeling like she lost her position as a high-profile diplomat's wife and broke ranks as a pro-choice endorser of the Equal Rights Amendment, which may very well have lost George the 1980 Republican nomination, but not so perilous as to deny him the billet of Veep. Barbara was back in the Club of Significance and would be a spicy second lady when indicating to politician Geraldine Ferraro as a, quote, rhymes with rich, end quote. Posterior to eight years of Reaganry, Barbara morphed into the First Lady and tried to change the narrative set by her predecessor Nancy. No glamorous clothes and more focus on family, church, and gardening. As their third eldest son Neil was challenged by dyslexia, 
Barbara wanted to bring literacy to the forefront of her agenda. Writing a children's book about the White House dog Millie having puppies, from which she donated all monies to promoting edification. As she saw it, the ability to read is, quote, the most important issue we have, end quote. She also had a radio show called Mrs. Bush's Storytime. Right-wing legislators felt uneasy with her support of the LGBTQ community when she declared, quote, The personal thing should be left out of, in my opinion, platforms and conventions, end quote. With reference to Roe v. Wade, quote, I hate abortions, but I just could not make that choice for someone else, end quote. The Bushes were one-term rectors. Out of office, Barbara learned just how out of rhythm she was with normal life. Cooking, driving, groceries. But George snapped her out of it by getting them a cabin on the Regal Princess. Or as you and I know it, the love boat. Barbara did not want George Jr. to run for Texas governor, Yet little did she know, four years later, he'd be the most powerful man on the planet, making her the first flotus to be both wife and mother to U.S. presidents since Abigail Adams. Her 80s sass made a comeback in 2010 when asked about vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Quote, I sat next to her once, thought she was beautiful, and I think she's very happy in Alaska, and I hope she'll stay there, end quote. Barbara dubiously supported Jeb's 2016 election bid because of the abysmal alternative, and in a debate, he called her, quote, the strongest woman I know, end quote, to which Donald Trump replied, quote, she should be running, end quote. Her elucidations on Trump, quote, I don't understand how women can vote for someone who said what he said about Megyn Kelly, end quote. And she denounced the Republican Party because of the treasonous poison that the former guy proved to be. Barbara's oil portrait presides in a dark studio where she pets her profile pooch Millie on the side. She wears a black open jacket pantsuit revealing a light blue tucked in blouse. Above a pearl necklace, the First Lady is brilliantly lit, highlighting white pearl earrings, grayish-white hair, and the wise eyes and visage of a well-traveled grandmother. She died at age 92, prompting condolences from world leaders the likes of Queen Elizabeth II, Justin Trudeau, and Vladimir Putin. Hillary Diane Rodham was born and raised in Chicagoland. An inspirited child, she joined the Girl Scouts, played softball, swam, and wrote an enthusiastic letter to NASA about becoming an astronaut, only to be told that women aren't sanctioned for such an occupation. In high school, Hillary travailed with the student newspaper, student council, and served as class vice president her junior year, but lost the top prize her senior year, to a boy that taunted, quote, you are really stupid if you think a girl can be elected president, end quote. 
as a teenager, she believed Richard Nixon had been the victim of voter fraud in the wake of his face-off with John F. Kennedy, motivating her to volunteer for the next Republican darling, Barry Goldwater. Yep, you heard me right, Republican. And that carried over to college, where the political science major was a harbinger of the Wellesley Young Republicans. Howbeit she was admittedly, quote, a mind conservative and a heart liberal, end quote. By the end of the decade, her views had shifted after witnessing, quote, veiled racist messages, end quote, at the Republican National Convention. After receiving her B.A., Hillary spent a summer in Alaska employed at a fish cannery and put it out of business after citing unsanitary workplace conditions. Next stop, Yale, where she built a resume offering pro bono legal counsel to child abuse victims. Then Hill met Bill and the two lived together while she interned at an Oakland, California law firm. Upon his graduation, Bill proposed to Hillary, and she said no. Now a law school graduate turned assistant professor, her star was rising as part of the impeachment inquiry staff for the Watergate scandal, and boyfriend Bill lingered on, occasionally asking her to marry him. Eventually, she capitulated, quote, I chose to follow my heart instead of my head, end quote. And they moved to Bill's native Arkansas, where he taught law and nabbed a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Meanwhile, Hillary served as campaign director of field operations for Jimmy Carter's interstate flesh pressings as Bill advanced to attorney general of Arkansas and it wasn't long before they were occupying the governor's mansion for 12 non-consecutive years. As first lady of the toothpick state, she fought for education and children, something she was getting used to as new mother to the team's only child, Chelsea. Her promotion of literacy earned Hillary Arkansas Woman of the Year, Mother of the Year, and the National Law Journal put her in the top 100 influential lawyers in the USA twice. She made more money than Bill and almost ran for governor in his place in 1990, but an exploratory committee found her chances of winning to be poor. When Bill threw his hat in the ring for the highest commission in the land, rumors of infidelity spurned a media frenzy and Hillary's rejoinder was to parrot Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. Not a popular response. Nor were her opinions about being a working mother versus being a stay-at-home one. The American Spectator called her, quote, the Lady Macbeth of Little Rock, end quote. When Clinton clinched the White House, her heavy embroilment led the bourgeoisie to impute them as co-presidents or, quote, billery, end quote. Bill wanted her to spearhead the Clinton health care plan, or as the GOP called it, Hillary Care. Even so, 
Clinton snagged a second term as Hillary stood with Attorney General Janet Reno to form the Office on Violence Against Women. Hillary beat Pat Nixon's record as most traveled first lady while she globetrotted speaking out for democracy, civility, and advocating that, quote, human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights, end quote. As a role model for women worldwide, the Monica Lewinsky debacle put Hillary in the precarious position where she felt it her duty to save face and stand by her man, again, calling it a, quote, vast right-wing conspiracy, end quote. Be that as it may, overwhelming evidence would prove the affair to be true. Hillary was both revered and venerated alike for either having the strength and aplomb to stay in her marriage and just the opposite for enabling such bad behavior on her husband's part. In the months leading up to the end of executive tenure, the Clintons bought a home in the Empire State to legitimize Hillary's pursuit of an emptying Senate fulcrum. She was called a carpetbagger. Regardless, in 2000, Hillary Clinton became the first First Lady to be elected to the Senate in addition to being the first female senator from New York. Moreover, Hillary holds title to a very rare statistic. For 17 days before George W. Bush was sworn in, she worked at both the White House and the U.S. Capitol. Senator Clinton was involved in several committees, like armed services, health, education, labor budget, and public works. And after being re-elected, she took a stab at the top job against up-and-comer Barack Obama. Hillary had strong numbers at first, but it seemed the more her husband gave stump speeches, the worse she did. With his victory, Obama nominated her for Secretary of State. She hesitantly accepted where she met an array of challenges, particularly relating to the Arab Spring, and she was part of the deciding team to nab Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. She resigned upon Obama's re-election. After the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya was attacked on September 11, 2012, Hillary was questioned for years about lapsed security measures taken under her watch. The findings were that she was not culpable. Do I even need to mention the showdown with Donald Trump? The Electoral College, which she had been seeking to eradicate since 2000, crushed her chances despite an overwhelming majority by over 2.8 million popular votes. After conceding the election, she told people to support Donald Trump. Quote, We owe him an open mind and a chance to lead. End quote. Two years later, she called Trump's budget proposal a, quote, con, end quote, and his withdrawal from the Paris Agreement on Climate as a, quote, historic mistake, end quote. Newsweek magazine has hailed Hillary as, quote, 
one of the most recognizable but least understood figures in American politics, end quote. Her portrait is set in a pastel-toned, grayish-blue room where she sports a black pantsuit, surprise, surprise, a simple necklace, not pearl, standing awkwardly between a chair and a tabletop with a commemorative plate upon it, flashing that trademark toothy smile. Laura Lane Welch was an only child, two parents who ran a real estate venture in Midland, Texas, as she developed a love for libraries and reading early in life. Her favorite book was Little House on the Prairie. At age 17, Laura was involved in a fatal automobile accident when she haphazardly blew through a stop sign, killing the driver of a car that she hit, which just so happened to be a fellow classmate. She was devastated. Laura went on to get a B.S. in education and taught elementary school for four years before shooting for her master's degree in library science from the University of Texas. Laura was introduced to George W. Bush by a friend at a barbecue, and George was so smitten that they were married four months later. Right away, she was the wife of an aspiring lawmaker, conflicting with the stipulation she had given him before marriage of never wanting to make a campaign speech. George began with an unfruitful run for Congress and fatherhood, but a few years later, when his dad played Robin to Reagan's Batman, George Jr. and Laura had twin girls, Jenna and Barbara. Through five years of managing a family, it had become apparent that there was a vice in their home that Laura wished to have conquered, alcohol and she expressed the desire to rid George of this evil. By the mid-1990s, they were the first couple of Texas, during which time Laura did not throw any fancy events or parties, instead focusing her attention on the Take Time for Kids and Reach Out and Read programs promoting family articulacy. She founded the Texas Book Festival, establishing rainbow rooms all over the state, providing a haven to abused kids. Furthermore, she brought breast cancer and Alzheimer's awareness to the vanguard of her docket. Laura was primed for the White House and determined to put her own stamp on the honored position. Breaking her nuptial proviso, Laura spoke on George's behalf at the RNC for the 2000 election. She held first that Roe v. Wade should be the law of the land, but that we must, quote, limit the number of abortions to try to reduce the number of abortions in a lot of ways. And that is by talking about responsibility with girls and boys, by teaching abstinence, having abstinence classes everywhere in schools and in churches and in Sunday school, end quote. Laura was eager to enhance the literary program she had grown in Texas on the national level and testified on behalf of teachers to Congress. Then 9-11, the middle of the beginning of the end of the American Republic. When the first tower was struck, 
she was supposed to be talking to Congress and George was literally reading a book with a classroom of kids in Florida. Laura jumped into fundraising at the JFK Center to aid families of the victims. Her Women's Health and Wellness Initiative was not just designed for America, but women everywhere, especially those in Afghanistan. Quote, The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorists. End quote. In 2005, she teamed up with Nancy Reagan to create the First Lady's Red Dress Collection, celebrating crimson-colored clothing all the way back to Lady Bird Johnson. Cancer and heart health were also of top concern to Laura, and she supported efforts to continue cure research and showed grace in poise after being dissed by John Kerry's wife, who said of her, quote, I don't know Laura Bush, but she seems to be calm and she has a sparkle in her eye, which is good. But I don't know that she's ever had a real job. I mean, since she's been grown up, end quote. Laura forgave the slight as she believed the media used trick question tactics to prompt such dictum. Her approval rating far outsized her husband's for one simple reason, bipartisan resourcefulness. I mean, who's openly against children's refinement or curing breast cancer? What's more, she was making the realm look good by touring Africa to ease tribulations brought on by malaria and AIDS. The UN made her an honorary ambassador. After the White House, George and Laura went back to their Texas ranch and she got to penning her memoirs. When their portraits were unveiled at the White House, Laura commented to then flotus Michelle Obama, quote, Nothing makes a house a home like having portraits of its former occupants staring down at you from the walls, end quote. Michelle was appropriately amused. Laura's portrait conveys a mom hosting a Halloween party, exhibiting a vampish, high-collared, floor-length black gown accessorized by a big, chunky belt. The bare-necked Laura smiles confidently with her hand resting on the back of her chair in a parlor room with a fireplace, a lovely carpet, and red velvet seating. To this day, Laura advocates an important issue never brought up by any flotus in or out of office, the matter of dwindling populations of monarch butterflies. Laura appeared with Michelle Obama in 2020 at the One World Together at Home concert to thank first responders and essential workers for their tireless efforts to help America get through the scourge of COVID-19 proving that folks from different parties can indeed be cordial to one another. In Michelle's words, their partnership is, quote, a great example for the world to see that women in different political parties in the United States agree on so many issues, end quote. Our next episode will be our last, and we'll get familiar with the first African-American first lady, the first foreign-born flotus since Louisa Adams, 
and the current lady of the White House who controversially uses the title that she has rightfully earned, Doctor. Our last outing took us from bush to bush with a layover in Clinton land, bringing us to the terminus of our journey together. Michelle LaVon Robinson is a Windy City native, go Cubs, who had a typical upbringing playing board games, going to church, family gatherings, and was taught to play piano by her great aunt. Michelle and older brother Craig were such capable youths as to both be advanced past second grade and entered into gifted curriculum. The siblings were the first in their family to attend college, Princeton, respectively, where Michelle graduated cum laude. Clashing with her diverse Chicago, Princeton was an environment where Michelle was hyper-aware of race and economic status. The mother of her roommate didn't want her daughter living with a black girl. It bears mentioning that unlike any other woman in this entire series, Michelle's great-great-grandparents were born into slavery. Her granddad built his own house in South Carolina, and all of her grandparents were of mixed lineage, ranging from Irish to Native American. Therefore, she was mega involved in polity for minority students. By the time she got to Harvard Law School, Michelle was determined to be, quote, both brilliant and black, end quote, and went to bat for tenants of what one might abase as projects with legal counsel as one of a handful of African Americans who worked at the Sidley Austin LLP law firm. Another was a summer associate that she mentored and became cozy with, Barack Obama. Their first date was Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. They married three years later. While Barack taught law school at the University of Chicago and then got elected to Illinois State Senate, Michelle was assisting the mayor of Chicago, the commissioner of planning and development, earned the title of executive director for the Chicago Office of Public Allies, and worked inwardly at Chicago U's Community Service Center. Michelle didn't particularly love what a political lifestyle entailed, but was also not blind to the fact that Barack would someday be a big player. So she wisely used the caveat to barter a deal with him. He could run for office if he quit smoking. Deal. Michelle was a massive asset to the Yes We Can movement, making 33 appearances in just eight days, with visits to the Oprah Winfrey Show, The View, and being hailed the most fascinating person of the year by Barbara Walters. Brother Craig put it best at the 2008 DNC, quote, You work hard for what you want in life, that your word is your bond, and you do what you say you're going to do, that you treat people with dignity and respect, even if you don't know them, and even if you don't agree with them, end quote. Of course, Fox News's Cal Thomas denounced her as a, quote, angry black woman, end quote, and Edie Hill decried the dyad's knuckle bump to be a, quote, terrorist fist jab, end quote. 
and the media was all over the Queen Elizabeth scandal when Michelle broke decorum by lightly touching the monarch's back. My word. Every single flotus since 1929, excluding Bess Truman, has been in Vogue magazine, but only Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama have been on the cover. Raising kids in the White House required additional skilled hands, so Michelle's mom moved in so she could commit do-goodery on schools, shelters for the impoverished, the betterment of life for women, and passage of the Fair Pay Act, leading some to believe that Michelle might run for office one day. Barack's comments on such a premise, quote, There are three things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and Michelle is not running for president. That I can tell you. End quote. In her words, quote, I have no intention of running for office ever. End quote. Preferring to, quote, impact as many people as possible in an unbiased way. End quote. As other first ladies, she wanted to endorse healthy diets and led by example planting a White House kitchen garden, the first of its kind since Eleanor Roosevelt. Obesity in children was the focus of her Let's Move initiative, but it went far beyond that. The U.S. Armed Forces were noticing an alarming number of corpulent recruits. Republicans slammed the docket, quite notably the incredibly rotund governor of New Jersey at the time, Chris Christie. Michelle also had beehives brought in, whose honey was served on site. By the way, bees are especially important to the health and survival of our planet. Upon the administration's repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military and legalization of same-sex marriage, Michelle asserted, quote, in a country where we teach our children that everyone is equal under the law, discriminating against same-sex couples just isn't right. It's as simple as that. End quote. The First Lady absorbed aspersion again for not covering her head when sojourning to Saudi Arabia, where King Salman acted as if she wasn't even there. Michelle's oil portrait is utterly unique and something to behold in an artistic folksy style known as grisaille. Seemingly drawn in black and white, she rests her chin on her hands, seated in front of a sky-blue backdrop, as geometric patterns of her dress flow into color. When confronted by critiques of not resembling Obama... Artist Amy Sherald shrugged, quote, Some people like their poetry to rhyme, some people don't, end quote. Melania Nav spent her childhood in the Yugoslav Republic of Slovenia as her father ran vehicle dealerships and mother labored designing clothes for children with the perfect inspiration and model for her innovations. As early as age five, Melania was immersed in the glamorous world of fashion. She started doing commercial work at age 16, went to the Secondary School of Design and Photography, and spent a year at the University of Ljubljana before signing with an Italian modeling agency. 
In her mid-20s, Melania was encouraged to tackle the New York City runway circuit by a gentleman ensuring that his model managing colleague, Donald Trump, would likely represent her. She did. Embracing her young, sexy spirit, Melania did several near-nude photo sessions. Expressly, in the UK's version of GQ, shot on location within the Donald's personal Boeing 727. She wears only jewelry. When asked to comment about it, Trump remarked it, quote, was a picture taken for a European magazine prior to my knowing Melania. In Europe, pictures like this are very fashionable and common, end quote. In contempt of clearly having started dating in 1998, officially they were not an item because he was still going through divorce proceedings with his second wife, Marla Maples. Melania applied for permanent residency in the United States through the EB-1 program for her, quote, extraordinary abilities, end quote. Few people get certified. She did. For her sage experience in European regalia, having a gigantic cigarette ad in Times Square, and appearing in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And it has been suggested that letters of recommendation from high-profile people associated with Trump abetted her rapid processing. With the new millennium, Melania barnstormed for Don's 2000 presidential campaign under the Reform Party banner to convey her vision as FLOTUS. Quote, I would be very traditional, like Betty Ford or Jackie Kennedy. End quote. And in the medium of frippery alone, this proved to be true. But before going there, Melania had to prepare for her first, and Donald's third, wedding. A ceremony attended by the likes of Rudy Giuliani, Regis Philbin, P. Diddy, and Donald's future rival, Hillary Clinton. Bill was there too. And Billy Joel played the reception. The prestigious duo has had one child together. Baron William Trump. Be it by taking Trump's name or being trapped in his orbit, inside of a decade, she had a line of QVC products, Melania timepieces, as well as Melania Mark's skincare collection. She was greatly absent from the 2015 presidential debates, and some strife was sparked when Trump commandeered the West Wing because she was supposed to give up control of those businesses, yet they were listed in her White House bio. When the Trumps first took office, she roosted in Manhattan with Barron, jetting between Washington, D.C. and Florida when necessary. Her Secret Service code name was Muse, and his, Mogul. Her substantiation of Donald's staunch position on immigration is remarkable, especially considering that she was only the second FLOTUS not born in the U.S. homeland or its territories since Louisa Adams, and the first whose native tongue is not English. To use her global position for good, 
Melania declared it her mission to stick up for women and put an end to cyberbullying. Quote, Our culture has gotten too mean and too rough, especially to children and teenagers. It is never okay when a 12-year-old girl or boy is mocked, bullied, or attacked. It is terrible when that happens on the playground. And it is absolutely unacceptable when it is done by someone with no name hiding on the internet. End quote. Melania was publicly scrutinized following the Republican National Convention after giving a speech that mirrored one of former First Lady Michelle Obama's from eight years earlier, nearly word for word. Melania insisted that she wrote it with, quote, as little help as possible, end quote and then went on to crib Michelle's words again, pushing her Be Best memoranda. Mrs. Trump was reportedly cordial to the White House staff, had no apparent relationship whatsoever with second lady Karen Pence, and further broke protocols by demanding the dismissal of the deputy national security advisor and requesting that Pope Francis bless her rosary. Melania gets some undeserved backlash over comments made in a private conversation regarding White House Christmas decorations. Quote, I'm working my ass off on the Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a fuck about the Christmas stuff and decorations? But I need to do it, right? End quote. Per contra, on the topic of children being caged at the U.S.-Mexican border, quote, Oh, What about the children that they were being separated? Give me a fucking break. Were they saying anything when Obama did that? I cannot go. I was trying to get the kid reunited with the mom. I didn't have a chance. It needs to go through the process and through the law. End quote. Both Trumps were infected and treated for COVID-19 in October 2020, just before losing the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives in the November election. The events that transpired on January 6, 2021 are still part of an ongoing investigation, but suffice it to say that Trump failed to uphold his oath of office by standing idly by as the United States Capitol was rioted by violent insurrectionists, disqualifying him from ever holding public office again. Stand down and stand by for that. In the meantime, if you look up Melania Trump's official portrait online, you will not find a painted rendering on canvas, but rather what looks like one of hundreds of images taken during a photo shoot. She looks totally in her element. The heavily airbrushed tableau features a crisply focused Melania wearing a black power blazer with folded arms, a half smile, and a hypnotic gaze that seems to ask, you want a piece of me? Jill Tracy Jacobs grew up in a suburb near Philadelphia, evidenced by her slight Philly accent and lifelong support of Quaker City sports. As the oldest of five girls to parents who were self-proclaimed agnostic realists, Jill occasionally went to Presbyterian Church with her grandma and eventually joined the fray. As a waitressing teenager, she dreamt of working in the fashion industry. 
Nevertheless, once in college, she settled on a major in English, though she did do some modeling. At age 19, Jill caught the eye of a college football player to whom she was married for four years. The fellow went on to open a popular college bar that once hosted Bruce Springsteen before he was the boss. Jill was introduced to Joe Biden a year after separating from hubby number one, undeterred by the decade age difference between them because she liked his mature demeanor. They took things slow, as Joe had lost a child and first wife to a car accident, and Jill got a bum deal from her divorce, so they were both weary to remarry anyone. But after a few trips around the sun, she accepted his proposal and raised Joe's remaining boys, Hunter and Bo, as her own, in addition to the daughter they had together, Ashley. Jill was and is an educator and mastered the multitasking required to be a wife, stepmother, mother, teacher, and side hustler for Joe's senatorial office. She taught English at the high school level for 13 years, taking teens being treated in psychiatric facilities under her wing to help them cope with learning hurdles. She then got her master's degree, taught college, and vowed to continue doing so even if she should ever be FLOTUS. Though Jill didn't want Joe to run for president in 2004, making a convincing argument by putting on a swimsuit, writing the word no on her tummy, and parading through a stump meeting... However, she regretted it after George W. Bush won re-election and championed Joe to run in the next cycle. Quote, you've got to change this, end quote. But Joe was no match for the charismatic rising Democratic star Barack Obama and had to stand in his shadow for eight years. Jill, on the other hand, instantly began collaborating with her counterpart Michelle advocating for community colleges and the Joining Forces program for families of our military. She appears in an episode of Army Wives as herself and wrote a children's book, Don't Forget God Bless Our Troops, inspired by Bo Biden's departing for military duties. She launched the Biden Breast Health Initiative and as far as I know, is the only SLOTUS to have run both the Philadelphia Half Marathon and the Marine Corps Marathon at some point in their life. You'd think as second lady, Dr. B would stipulate a fancy office at North Virginia Community College, yet Jill shared a cubicle, met with students, and tried to have her G-men blend in a little bit on campus. Near the end of Obama's second term, Bo Biden died of brain cancer, testing Jill's faith in God and causing her to avoid church for a few years until just recently. She was bummed when Joe didn't vie for president in 2016 and doubly bummed over the outcome. Returning to civilian life, they headed the Biden Foundation, catering to a host of social and community organizations.
As an inveterate sponsor for women's rights, Jill faced perlustration defending Joe's approval of Clarence Thomas for Supreme Court despite sexual harassment allegations made by Anita Hill in the early 90s stating, quote, it's time to move on, end quote. When trying to get Joe as the DNC pick in 2020, quote, you know, your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is, but you've got to look at who's going to win this election, and maybe you'll have to swallow a little bit and say, okay, I personally like so-and-so better, but your bottom line has to be that we have to beat Trump, end quote. And she believed it, too because she did take off time from teaching to boost the campaign. Unbelievably, Jill once had a very congenial rapport with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham until he began attacking Hunter Biden in what has been derided as the Ukrainian impeachment scandal. Jill rallied around Kamala Harris as Joe's VP running mate and her first concern as First Lady was getting Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos out of the White House, but not before putting to sleep the controversy amongst conservatives of using her duly earned title of Doctor of Education. But Jill's FLOTUS chapter is unfinished at the time of this recording, as is her forthcoming oil portrait, and won't be history for years to come. And that concludes Better Half. 